project called Contain. It's um, sort of like a multimedia project that sort of shifted into a podcast once. Uh, we were sort of stripped to bare life uh, during COVID lockdown. And, uh, you know, that suspended state of uh, digital purgatory led me to examine uh, the only sort of uh, option I had left, which was, you know, engage in the psychotechnical sphere of the internet and, uh, you know, discursive conversations and trying to make them a little bit more free form and less uh, canonical and, you know, just try to do something different and interesting with it because right. I wasn't really that excited by what was happening otherwise it all seemed very sort of like lazy to me but um yeah no that's basically it um you know I... yeah i would recommend all of our podcast listeners go and listen to contain it's definitely one of the best projects most exciting projects out right now and one of the reasons pretty much the main reason we want to we wanted to talk to you today barrett is is sort of your approach to theory which you know we, we can get some some glimpses of it on con on contain but I would be really interested to hear about either what is a foundational sort of theoretical approach that you you kind of associate yourself with and and or what is sort of the theoretical tools theoretical uh the the theory people that you're looking to especially during now during covid to sort of understand the world the three people that i think are most important to read right now are Francois Arwell and, you know, philosophy and non-philosophy. And I would say, well, actually, let's let's expand that to four. Catherine Malibu's Before Tomorrow, hmm. which is sort of like a takedown of uh, speculative realism and neo-rationalism. Uh, it, it's, it's more speculative realism, but by proxy, it's sort of, uh, it, it kind of like undergirds the foundation of, I think, a critical, a sort of like a, a critical approach to this new sort of burgeoning para-academic, you know, analytic turn that I think is neither rigorous nor interesting. It's sort mm -hmm. of like this middle of the road where you're not rigorous to be taken seriously as a philosopher of science and a true academic but you're not like creative or out there enough to be like nick land and a total heretic <laughs> so you're sort of you sort of please nobody because <laughs> in, in a certain way and i think i think that's a really good text uh i think a gombin's book which is just sort of a compilation of all of his coronavirus texts uh where are we now i thought i think that's a really good one um, I know Benjamin Bratton would disagree with that, but you know, whatever. I don't give a shit what he thinks. Um, and uh, I would also say Psychopolitics by uh, by Yung Chul Han. So I, I would suggest those four for anybody reading this to sort of understand the kind of, you know, those are the, the four that I think the first two are a little bit more abstract, obviously. Right. Uh, I think non-philosophy and Lariel is really good at examining the sort of givens that I think IQ signaling and philosophy and discursive abstract text can 
have on somebody's brain you know like i think it's really good for people to sort of uh, like this is i think the problem with twitter and i think the problem with a lot of theory stuff in general is people really do try to sound smart all the fucking time yeah and the rational narrative of the real is not exactly as um important as people think like there is there's some substrate you know uh, i think uh, ray brassier said something which i thought was mm-hmm. funny and stupid but he said that francois laruel and non-philosophy is essentially uh, wilfred sellers myth of the given he says they're the same thing it's like well perhaps but at the same time can the way in which an idea is contextualized really really matters and right. so I think um, when you're looking at things like Taoism and Buddhism and when people sort of relate Lariel to that, and I've, I've read a few sort of uh, texts on that too, I think that's where things get interesting. But I really do think the context of something matters because when you frame something as being analytic and it's not, I mean, Wittgenstein is cool because he's like a, you know, he's a schizoaffective poet. He's not cool because he's quote unquote irrational or analytic, you know, mm-hmm. because there are so many things in, in analytic philosophy that are, are just non-quantifiable. Like the whole idea of the, in, in Wilfred Sellers, for example, of the, um, of the sort of base sensings and sensibilities. It's like, that's not, that's not a quantifiable claim. There's nothing you can say. I mean, it's very similar. The person who's, who I think actually articulates it better is, is Jakob von Uxkill when he talks about Umwelt, obviously Umwelt, because Umwelt is actually biological. You can see it sort of animate itself in the world. Uh, that was a long rant. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> No, that's good. A lot of things to, to pick up on there. Um, my, I'll, I'll quickly ask because of my own, you know, ego and interest in this, but I'm interested as sort of a, a fellow agombophile, uh, what do you think, there's sort of this recent uh, debate or, or sort of controversy surrounding Agamben's thought that, you know, I can understand elements of why people would sort of react negatively to it, but it seems to be it seems to be almost like exponentially more controversial than I would have expected for an Agamben book or essay series at this time. What do you think it is about what Agamben is doing now that is is so like hard for people to process on a way that's not like reactionary or negative? Mm. Well, I think Ben Bratton said it best. I read his, uh, like an excerpt of his new book, The Return of the Real, which, you know, honestly sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me. <laughs> um, and he attacked Agamben as being basically nothing more than Alex Jones without the Texas accent, which is, I think, a, you know, I think that's an extremely, um, I don't know how to say this classist maybe thing to say, uh, or it, it's definitely bigoted. And I think, you know, he's the guy's definitely totally full of himself. I think the, I think here's the thing that people have sort of attacked biopolitics. Like Byung Chul Han, he talked about how, you know, Foucault 
biopolitics is over because now we're sort of in what Stiegler calls uh, psycho-technological psycho psychopolitics. So mm -hmm. Stiegler is basically like the biological uh, ways of control are no longer there because we're all sort of harnessed by this algorithmic apparatus that exists and, um, you know, basically turns the master-slave dialectic inward, which I think is, is totally true. I think this whole shit about Marxism and working class, blah, blah, blah. I think that's total cope. I think that's all over because right. the master slave dialectic exists within the fact that by virtue of being, you know, a virtual subject that, um, that apparatus of control, that relationship is something that we have internally. And this is what he talks about in psychopolitics. Now, what happened during COVID is we had the compounding of Foucault, Panopticon, biopolitics, the control of bodies, which is what Agamben talks about, with right. the psycho, psychotechnological psychopolitics of Stiegler and uh, Chul Han. Uh, so I thought that is um, really... Uh, something that people really have a difficulty processing like no this moment is way more crazy making and fucked up uh than you even want to ever fucking imagine and i think it's really difficult for people to parse out the fact that um biopolitics is back and mm -hmm. yeah, maybe like you shouldn't deny the deep state and maybe Alex Jones did get a lot of shit right. And maybe a Gombin gets things right. And I just think people, they chalk him up to this sort of like mystical uh, conspiracy theorist who talks about, cause you know, he talks a lot about like the human soul and it's very uh, in this kind of like a neo Hegelian discourse. It's very like, yeah. uh, it's very like heretical to think of that a human possesses any soul outside of like world spirit or geist or whatever, like, right. you know, because everyone's so, but these are all necrophiles who still think Marxism is a real thing and applicable. <laughs> and like, it, it, I don't know if you've read any of Lara L's uh, texts on uh, non-Marxism. I think that's great. I think so. I haven't read much, but I that's definitely some stuff that I, I think about a lot. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's this total. Um, this idea that people still have a collective agency and a collective way of managing or doing something about it. And also this, uh, you know, on the other hand, this strange uh, hatred of like the individual or inner sovereignty. So. Right. You know, I've, I've heard uh, some, a couple of your podcasts and in terms of when, you know, these accusations of calling you like a nihilist or something, I just from what you've said, I don't I don't get why people even say that. For example, a lot of the philosophy that you seem interested in is like this um, vitalist philosophy, uh, you know, still working up from what, you know, what the body can do or what the what the human is capable of, even within the bounds of constriction. And I think COVID-19 kind of exacerbated that because, you know, you do have this return of uh, biopolitics. It's almost unprecedented how we all got reduced down to bare life. 
I think Gombin mentions this in his book. It's like the new, the new war on terror is is this like a hyper um, yeah bio surveillance and 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 Benjamin Bratton dismissed the second war on terror. It's like, uh, do you not see that people are like, uh, do, have you not seen the new Facebook warnings about like turning your family in for quote unquote extremism? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, Agamben talks a lot about the new war on terror and that every single person who's infected with this thing somehow becomes a terrorist. You know, they're sort of like this uh, spreader of a of a terrorist contagion. Mm-hmm. That was now we all, you know, recognize that was pretty much like created in a, in a fucking lab. Like, right. I mean, this isn't like controversial conspiratorial, even though this is something that you know, people like Agamben had been stating since the very beginning. It's like, why wouldn't they? I mean, uh, or why would they tell the truth? Why yeah. would why would anybody? Why do people take everything on face value? I actually want to follow up on this whole topic of heresy um, in terms of what the dominant, you know, discourse is. This is hyper rationality or this notion of uh, instrumental rationality. Um, in terms of heresy, I want to see if what your thoughts are on heresy in terms of combating this instrumental rationality or just reason this appeal to reason this hyperfixation on reason that seems to have only been exacerbated uh not even put out by postmodernism it, it almost seems like postmodernity uh created a, a wave of uh, reactionaries who are like no reason can be saved or you yeah. know we should still appeal to reason uh, or rationality as the as the motor of history in some way yeah. Well, I, I think about uh, Jacques Derrida's gift of death and Jan Pataka. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, and I and he examines Jan Pataka's heretical essays in the philosophy of history. And the basic text uh, like principle of that is that Europe declined from its Greek heritage to seek material orientation and power rather than truth. So we had this incredible truth procedure that we got from the Greeks, from the Stoics, uh, and we turn that from a sort of like ethical truth-seeking procedure into a materialistic one. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the, the birth of heresy and heretical consciousness. And I think in order to sort of because obviously, like, to a certain extent, I'm a little bit more of a, I'm a, I am a determinist. Like, I believe in total mobilization. I don't believe that we have outer freedom. You know, the gestalt, uh, I mean, the gestel of the world, you know, I do believe in the sort of, like, Heidegger notion. I'm actually more skeptical than Heidegger. Like, I, I actually think we have less sort of romantic um control or ability over the tools in which we're sort of, you know, walk into society with. Uh, So in that sense, and actually in Gift of Death, Derrida brings up uh, what my favorite is Ernst Jünger. And Ernst Mm -hmm. Jünger is a complete machinic autonomist. I mean, he talks about the complete death of metaphysics. 
and he talks and it brings up actually a lot of uh, passages of storm and steel. So people don't understand how based Derrida was. I think uh, people give him <laughs> a bad, true. I think people give uh, Jacques Derrida a very bad rap. And I think they give Paul demand a bad rap too, not just because, you know, he was a Dutch Nazi at one point who <laughs> robbed a bunch of people and was a horrible father. And he's a piece of shit. Like obviously, you know, Paul demand, the, the deconstructionist bad guy whatever yeah. <laughs> but uh, i think um you know and this is something i think is really important this kind of goes with my whole finance punk post cringe thing is the the way to sort of become the anarch in the Jung, in the younger sense to be the sort of inner sovereign because there's nothing you can do to control the gestell of existence because i, I mean I think he talks about this in actually on mobilization. He says, you know, metaphysics died. This this kind of like chivalry or romance died in World War One when Germany showed up to war and they were on horses with, uh, you know, uh, they had swords and stuff like that. And then Britain showed up and they had machine guns. So all of their sort of like Germanic romantic um fantasies about you know chivalry and you know it all went out the window when they got leveled by a by a british machine gun which in a lot of ways like that sort of death crush of world war one you know really created the sort of like nihilism of nazism you know it sort of lent itself to that so that's sort of like a negative heretical way of dealing with uh, the metaphysics with a sort of like new metaphysical or post metaphysical reality of that time. And, I, and, and Bayung Chulhan, he talks about the need to elevate heretical consciousness. And right. I think that in order for somebody to be free, to be what you want to call like a free thinker or something like that, you almost have to be seen as a complete idiot or a retard. Yeah. I really do believe that, um, that the only sort of way out of this sort of neoliberal thing is to see it as a game, to see it as a joke, uh, to elevate your heretical consciousness, to say things that you cannot say. I mean, you know, Foucault talks a lot about this too. Uh, and I think Agamben is just sort of, uh, he says a lot of things that people find to be heretical because he is against the scientific community in a lot of ways. He actually claims that um, one of the things he says that I thought was really, um, really actually prescient was that, you know, in the West, you had three religions. You have Christianity, you have science, and you have capitalism. Now, they use Carl Schmitt, the Nazi jurist, state of exception. He, I love how he equates like Fauci to being a Nazi. It's amazing. <laughs> Uh, to basically elevate scientism as the new dominant religion over neoliberalism mm -hmm. and Christianity. So all of this stuff, so when you see all the signs like uh, science is real, love is love, and all this sort of like <laughs> nonsense crap, yeah. and, and Fauci says, he's like, when you attack me, you attack the scientific process itself. I mean, like... Can't we all agree that this is just corrupt bullshit? This is like 
the Catholic Church, you know, right. before the Lutheran Reformation. I don't, I don't see any difference. I mean, the natural sciences had more advances under fucking Catholicism than they do now. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, like it's a joke. So how are people pretending that this quote unquote thing called reason doesn't have its own uh, maniacal, uh, just crazy thing that's driving it? I think you can even tie that to kind of what's going on now. This, yeah, there's this this new hegemony of, of science, and I think science has really reached a point in sort of the Hegelian historical sense of how religions move from a natural religion to the positive institutions that then begin to constrain the naturalness of the religion. I think scientists are basically at that phase where there's too many positive institutions, there's too many positive sort of uh, categories and ways of approaching knowledge that something like, say, a UFO is so incomprehensibly heretical to the scientific community because there's no real way to account for them under the current positive structures, right? I think you're right to say that like science, science is basically a more successful Christianity as of right now. It's, it's, it still has its ability to capture the entirety of knowledge under its sort of Heideggerian architecture. And I wonder, do you think science will one continue along this path become increasingly more institutionalized and just say hey this thing these things don't exist and we're not going to deal with them or a second route where science says okay we may have gotten some things wrong but we're just going to go back and we're going to change some of these positive identifiers we're, we're going to change the way that we approach these specific principles or three and what i think they'll do which is just say hey this stuff or i guess three would just be to completely let something like an alien or some sort of anomalous scientific uh, node kind of completely deconstruct science itself in almost like a Derridian deconstructionist way. I, I tend to think that it's it's the the first one that basically science is just going to, for as long as possible, say, you know, we can't deal with this stuff. It doesn't exist and it doesn't work within our bounds, within our architecture of knowledge. Yeah, I um, I agree with you on that. Uh, I don't think science is any way of at this point, because again, it's, it's so, it's so closely tied to power. You right. know, it, it's like, if you have that hegemony, hege hegemony, mm -hmm. it's going to keep going. It's like the sort of, mm, and I would say this is something that I think about. And I think this is sort of an example. You have sort of like, two competing postmodern temporalities. And I think one is a good kind and one is a very bad kind. And I think that um, you have one that's the sort of expansion of, anthrop of anthropocentric modernism, uh, mm -hmm. which I think that the scientific community is one that is expanding. So when people talk about, which is, which is almost like a stagnant postmodernism, it's not about... Um, you know, it's not about polysemy. It's not about the sort of um, permutations of, of language. It's more about creating these sort of stagnant binary categories of, you know, that are actually very conservative outsets of the just sort of endless expansion of modernism. And then you have a different kind of like heretical positive postmodernism that 
you know, acts as like the psychopomp or the jester or the hyoka, which is which is basically the heretical consciousness that's supposed to undergird the absurdity of this ever expanding modernist project. So this is kind of like the what I found to be the beauty of Trump is that he was able to sort of play the fool or the retard or the idiot as a way to sort of engage these kind of reactions to, to break down the the arguments of the ever expanding modernist project. And right. I and and I think that now we don't have anybody to do that. So we all have to sort of engender this um, this strange mix of heretical consciousness. And and one way to do that is to sort of accept that the inner dialectical struggle of, you know, being both master and slave within our own enterprise, and also to, you know, say things that are wrong and do them in this completely flippant, unabashed way so that we can sort of create a true, you know, because science obviously is obsessed with, and the neo-rationalists are obsessed with counterfactuals. Mm -hmm. Their their whole project is basically, well, when I wrote Intelligence and Spirit, it could be seen as a counterfactual that could be a lapdog for the, for the scientific community. Yeah, mm -hmm. bullshit. <laughs> if anything, what's going to take place is the elevation of heretical consciousness is going to, uh, is going to sort of like, destroy all of those things which is what i'm hoping and to me the only way to to challenge this this hegemony is um is to basically become that person to say these wrong things to do this stupid stuff uh and and you know um actually guattari you know, he he talked a little bit about that in some of his private notebooks, like the need to say stupid shit. So he would just write like poo poo shit, blah, 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 <laughs> just a bunch of nonsense. And I think that neologisms are a great way of doing that. My good friend Angelicism 01, you know, he actually a student of, of Jacques Derrida. Um, he you know, he talks about the oobly lapse and nobody knows what that means. But it means ubiquitous relapse. And I think, and it's a made up word. And, and I think ubiquitous relapse is a great way to sort of, uh, or oobly lapse is a great way to sort of explain this sort of ubiquitous relapsing, never ending modernist project that goes everywhere from like, Rachel Maddow to whatever, you know, it's like all these people are focused in, on this hyper modernism that is just, I think, incredibly stupid because never do these people question, do my values have any value? And this is kind of where I get uh, into my own sort of nihilism, because that's what Mitchell Heisman the, I think the greatest nihilist of the twenty of the twenty first century said he's like maybe you should take a take a step back and and question do my values have any value, mm -hmm. and that's basically it. So, I I'm interested in that, and I'm interested in this sort of 
the possibility of what I see as a heretical counter apparatus. The, the prevalence of that counter apparatus to me seems powerful in that it, it puts fear into the right people, that it puts fear into the apparatus more than I thought it would, so to speak. It's, it's heretical even more than I consider it to be heretical, right? I, I think it could be, it's something definitely way heretical, way outside of the bounds of sort of the current, uh, the current way we go about knowledge. But it, it's clear that it's clear that any any heresy away from these so-called truth processes that we hold dear in neoliberal society, any any heretical movement for that is considered a major threat to the overall well-being of the system. Could you could you expand on that a little bit more? Right. Yeah. So basically, uh, I'm interested to see. I see in what I'll call the counter apparatus and what you see in sort of like the rise of heresy. I think that the rise of heresy is something that's that's happening more, more prevalently than it's happened in the past. But also to me, it seems like heresy is, is creating more fear in the structures of power and the powers that be than it probably should. Yeah. That thinking something wrong seems to scare power more than it probably should is basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, that's the hilarious thing. It's like when you have uh, anonymous frog Twitter accounts, you know, shit posting. Uh, I mean, come on, like that's not, uh, you right. know, that's not anything to to really, you know, worry about. I mean, it's all just a funny art project, and this is. But at the same time, what scares them most is the psychological disposition to to them. I think the thing that is sort of like reflected most is the fact that in that sort of fear is the fact that people are clearly see what they do as a joke which is right. sort of like a fear of narcissism it's a it's a narcissistic in, injury so when people see somebody shit posting or saying something stupid or um acting unruly uh making weird heretical art uh, engaging in strange conversations, it it doesn't threaten their power, but it threatens the sort of specter of power that they have over, you know, uh, or the the colonization of inner life uh, that they also want to, um, you know, hold on to, because you know, on the biopolitical level, it, like for them, it wasn't good enough to just you know, uh, have all of this, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, power and restrictive power over bodies and sovereignty and citizenship and sort of like the classic political sense. They also needed it. They also needed to colonize the inner experience. Right. And I think that is one that is sort of found out foundationally born of, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorders before the 1950s as as you know and actually bernard stiegler talks a little bit about this is you know and this is where i think he sort of he didn't he didn't really mention too much of social media but when he talks about you know the advent of television it sort of created this new uh 
inner neuroses, this new right. sort of like, like psychotic inner neurotic experience where people used to have things like obsessive compulsive disorder, like neurose, neurotic disorders before television became like this ubiquitous thing. And uh, the technical image was real and manifested itself as this mainstay in all of our lives. He talked, you know, there was this point in time when people would had these obsessions, like their neurotics were placed on objects. They had the neuroses of the other. So it was always like somebody who turned a door handle too many times and mm -hmm. people who had obsessions with, with germs. But as these technical images came to dominate our lives and became, you know, affixed and we became so reflected within the, these kind of layers of, of generativity that are being constantly thrusted upon us that that neuroses turned inside so the only way to, to have complete control is to control people's is to colonize the inner experience through the psychopolitical uh technological um apparatus right so it so again like i don't think people understand we all feel it, right? We all feel fucking burnt out. Like I feel burnt out all the time. Like I'm just sort of, you know, uh, I'm just kind of like trying to work my way through it. And, and that's kind of the best we can do, but it is a really, I think, difficult time for people. Uh, and I don't, and so I try to have a little bit of empathy for everybody because, it really is unprecedented, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think what you were just saying is why you, me, and probably Cute as well, have this interest in Gestell, have this interest in what technological in framing in the Heideggerian sense is doing to us now, which I think it's it's changing rather rapidly. But there's a there's another element to it that I can't quite synthesize with technological and framing, but that I think of it as sort of, sort of a Lacanian problem. In Lacan says, you know, there's, there's many mirrors around, right? And there really is. In today's modern technology, it's not just the techne of how we sort of go about the world, it's how we see ourselves. And it's becoming increasingly important, the sort of Lacanian imaginary self. Uh, like, for example, I have, a, I have like a two, three-year-old cousin who, you know, they watch YouTube videos all day. And sometimes she'll say, because she doesn't really understand what it means, she'll say, like and subscribe, like and subscribe, like as if she's being filmed, because to her, that's just what what you do normally, right? You're just you're just sort of an object to yourself. And it yeah. seems like the mirrors are changing in a way that, that you know, like you're saying, it used to be literally the Lacanian mirror. You see yourself in the mirror yeah, and you identify, exactly. right? Yeah. Now it's a very abstract identification. It's an identification with yourself through the view of not just another, but of everybody else, right? Yeah. Everybody else. So I'm interested, what, what do you see in terms of this, the changes in technology, especially as regards to how we view ourselves? How do you see that sort of playing out going forward, especially with these, these sort of new technologies? Well, this is kind of why I'm mostly fascinated with this sort of like, you know, Zoomer art thought uh, kind of way of, of going about and using the... Now, I'm not saying that in a sort of like derogatory sense. I'm saying that almost in a good sense. That's something that I seek as beings from somebody, you know, I'm a millennial. I had uh, one, you know, I was 
raised in one temporality, which is, you know, sort of like pre-internet, you know, stagnant uh, technical images. And, and the techne was very much as associated with television and, and, and this kind of like, you know, programmed media versus mm -hmm. the media of limitless choice. And uh, I think that the sort of limitless choice, the sort of like, we sort of went actually, you know, there was a negative in systems of closed control, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is in the Deleuze and uh, Foucault essay on control society, violence was associated with negativity, you know, like in systems of con uh, it before the sort of control systems, all violence was was seen through like a negative apparatus. But what about the violence of the positive? You know, what about the violence of the self optimization for likes for emotional positivity, which is the whole thing with like uh, SJWs and snowflakes and people mm -hmm. who sort of prioritize this, this kind of like, uh, this, this emo, this emotive, and this isn't something like feeling because I think vibe discourse and I think, uh, feeling and talking about feelings is a lot different than emotions because emotions are fleeting, but feelings mm -hmm. and vibes relate to things that are different, like atmosphere. I think atmosphere is a great way to sort of, changing the atmosphere is a great way to sort of combat this, um, this sort of like hyper obsession with uh, emotional uh, stimulation or positive emotional violence. Right. And, and, and to me, we're in this such a strange time because you know, people are talking about like and subscribe, but we don't have a way to decouple ourselves from this constant process of needing to self-optimize ourselves for right. uh, the immaterial uh, neoliberal world. This is, a, again, this is why uh, rationalism and materialism doesn't work because it, most of our production is through immaterialism and yes i understand people are manufacturing steel i understand that manufacturing isn't completely dead but those people are, are on social media too they're willing participants in this experiment as well um anytime you post anything about your family uh so sure you may not be Try, trying to be a social media influencer. You may not try to be somebody who's trying to have like any sort of sway, cultural sway within this, but you're still locked into this thing. So on some level, uh, there's still like a, a level of, of positive, which is almost to me why I'm like, maybe the right move is to just exit the internet and become like a factory worker, you know, like maybe actually becoming like an exploited material individual is like better than this. I don't know. I've worked in a few factories before and mm, I would have to disagree. I thought it sucked really, really bad. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know if that makes any sense.
that does. That absolutely does. I think that reminds me a little bit of uh, like Simone Bay when she herself went to work at a factory. Yeah. And then she didn't come out, uh, you know, I mean, she did, she was heavily involved with the Marxist movements and bringing up those leftist oriented or left oriented groups. But then she ended up being a Christian mystic, uh, mm-hmm. a completely, you know, trying to exalt the, what we've been talking about, like the individual inner experience. Um, and in that sense, like how that even connects with um, the absolute or something greater than oneself. I have a quick question that I wanted to bring up for you, uh, Barrett. Um, in terms of this, these two spheres that we've been talking about, uh, you mentioned it, the optimization of the individual towards, uh, let's just call it like hypermedia. How do you see that and this, this almost inescapable temptation to create a brand for oneself by fighting this optimization or fighting this neoliberal hegemony, it's really easy to start developing or being captured by the neoliberal uh, rationality and then start creating a brand. Um, you know, you start, I mean, we've all, I, I feel like this is maybe just from personal experience, but I think to some extent we've all have experiences. If you spend any time on social media, you start, being corrosive towards these institutions, you post things that people like, and then you realize, oh, well, people like these kind of posts. And then you start right. presenting more of that content. And then and over time, you become more and more like a brand. So how do you escape this, this almost inevit- inevitable temptation towards um, building up your identity through the gaze of others? Well, this is actually something that <laughs> I sort of uh, plotted out when I started the contain project is I was going to remove myself from my productive digital output as much as possible. So I don't really include pictures of myself. I'll never do video. Um, obviously, you know, I have my own pictures in my own personal Instagram or whatever. Uh, and, um, I think the way you do it is, honestly, to be cognizant and aware of it and accept it. Like I have, like I never have any notifications on. I don't do notifications. I don't like seeing likes pour in. It feels like somebody is taking a scissor and uh, snipping off a part of my scrotum. It, 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 I feel that positive violence very deeply. Like there is a violence to it that I, I, I feel. And so I don't do notifications. I turn all my notifications off. I don't like seeing what people have to say in the group chats. I don't care about that. Like that's not, I don't care about the likes that people are giving me. Obviously you want ideas to gain influence, but I don't want to see the likes pour in. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. I have no interest in that. And I have no interest in, you know, gaining influence because the the problem with twitter is people shoot their load they give all their best ideas away to this thing that give absolutely does not give a fuck about them thinking that they can sort of like you know jack into this reward system that is completely non-existent it is completely unrewarding so this is why you see people who start um 
you know, long format creative projects based off the fact that they had a few hot takes that got them like a few thousand followers on social media. I decided I was going to start something without a following. And I wasn't going to follow a million people. And I wasn't going to jack into this reward system. And I wasn't going to play this fucking stupid popularity game. And I see people with fucking 60,000 followers on Twitter or whatever, and they can't get fucking anybody listening or subscribing to their shit because they've shot their fucking load because they think that somehow these things transition. I also have 10 years as a touring musician and I've made albums and I've done things and I was completely off of social media. Like I was like, you know, the bands I play in, they have social media accounts. Why do I need to post anything? So I was really late to the game. I didn't get an Instagram until I think 2015, 2016 or something. I didn't get really get a Twitter account until March of last year. Like I've been somebody who was very hesitant and resistant to social media, but at the same time, I'm very interested in trends. So like, you know, I've always been a lurker. Like I've always lurked, uh, but I never participated. And I think the way to do it is to start with by doing something without the need to piggyback off of this reward system, off of this neoliberal positive reward system that, you know, rewards things, doing things positively instantly and be consistent. I think if you're consistent enough, it starts doing the work for you. Like I didn't want to do anything like a lot, a lot of people also start creative projects off of meme accounts. Mm -hmm. I'm really against that too. I also don't think it's successful. I think it will backfire in the end because Mm -hmm. again, you've already given all of your data away to, and this is a a critique and angelicism. One had this great critique of the whole network spirituality movement. No, we actually need urbit. We need closed systems. Of, we need selective communities. Yeah. We need. We need actually. As the internet's grown bigger, it's actually gotten smaller too, because right. the because it's it's cultivated this sort of uh, receptive burnout, and and this actually like really civ- like different civilizational strata between. Uh, millennials and zoomers and boomers and all this stuff like the biggest uh existence in terms of gap has nothing to do with race or anything like that which is why racism is so stupid it, it really had the 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 generalization the general uh that has a lot more to do with it that's the bigger uh, war, I think, between people is the war of how many layers of reality can you synthesize based mm-hmm. on how mediated you are to these technological apparatus. That's that's where the whole um, I think that's where the actual sort of battle lies. I think of it. I, I agree with that completely. And I kind of think of it as a new Luddism, um, but not like a, a Luddism in the technical sense of being against technology, but maybe a psychotechnical logism of not mm. engaging or plugging yourself into these feedback loops. And I think of it as like the internet's whole thing is like, everything's open, everything's here. 
everybody's information is just out in the open. This Luddism, like you're saying, understands the technology has consequences on like the human spirit itself, that maybe you want closed systems. You know what I mean? Maybe you want, you know, less information out there. Maybe you want more privacy, but these things are, are now a Luddism, like you're saying. They're, they're almost seen as crazy, you know? I mean, it's obvious that if you don't have any social media, you're viewed as almost a, a potential terrorist, right? Like, who doesn't have a social media, right? Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I think there's, there's, there's something to be had there with this Luddism uh, that, that can sort of not have your mind mentally raped by cybernetic feedback loops, right? Mm. Totally. I don't, but, it, you know, I, I'm interested to see, because you've been very almost successful with this, do you think, or I guess the better question is, how do we manage this socially? How do you build social networks that can survive sort of the social negativity that will come at you by being heretic, uh, a heretic, a technological heretic, you know? Uh, well, I've had a lot of people, you know, come after me, which is funny. I mean, I, I've i said a lot of things that, that you should not say. I mean, in the <laughs> Trump era, I was very... Um, outspoken about a lot of things that people did not like uh, at that time, which, you know, I think proved to be real that fascism was not coming from that side of things. Right. You know, uh, I like there, there, it was, if anything, it was all sort of, you know, a joke to sort of show that, you know, the executive position is one as, you know, we sort of, uh, as we get deeper and deeper into this uh, web of of technological psychopolitical capture that colonizes the inner experience, these uh, these sort of top down institutional roles are becoming less and less important. So why not have a comedian up there? Why not <laughs> right. have Chief Keefe as president? Like fuck it, seriously. Like yeah. I, I don't understand. Because I think that there's a beauty and a genius to both Trump and Chief Keefe. Mm -hmm. I think that they're, it's, it's a deeply postmodern genius. But I'm just like, why not have Kanye West or fucking Caitlyn? Like, who yeah. fucking, like, who cares? I mean, I just, I don't see their, uh, you know, and I think Heidegger said it best, only a god can save us. Right. Why are we putting this sort of faith in these institutions that are changing and you know neoliberalism loves crisis i mean milton friedman wrote about this that it, you need to interject crisis into capitalism in order to take advantage of things and and i think you're seeing a lot of the relationship with crypto as kind of like you know i used to be very harsh on libertarians but i think there are two different kinds of libertarians. There are fiat libertarians like uh, Mark Cuban of Shark Tank and Elon Musk. And then you have crypto libertarians, which I think are, are cooler, which are people who sort of are looking for an escape from the hegemony, even right. though they and so it almost proved a little bit of my thesis wrong about um neoliberalism and, and economic power you know and as somebody who identified and called himself a non-left non sort of post-marxist for a long time i i've kind of taken the stiegler wrote in that 
it doesn't account enough for entropy. We're just we're right. just so far beyond the the sort of need to assess. And I'm not saying material like material concerns don't matter. I'm not saying that. Um, obviously, you know, it, actually, Lariel, when he talks about uh, non-Marxism, he's talking about uh, the way in which populism animates itself throughout history. Like Marxism is a is a non-populism in that it's articulating the same material. Uh, cycle that had existed with Gaius Julius Caesar versus the Senate of Augustus Octavius, right? right? Like these things, the material conditions get to be a certain point. There's a tipping point and you have a populist, which is why Julius Caesar and Karl Marx and Trump are a part of that same material phenomena. You just, you know, the metaphysics are different, but they're all interchangeable. There's there's really not very much difference between any of those three uh, phenomenal uh, occurrences. It, it's the same shit over and over. It happens every 80 years or so. And that's basically it. Um, and it's become. It's become a natural progression. Right. And. And so what we're seeing now is this really strange moment. I think people, I just think politics are kind of dead because, because we have the biopolitics and the psychopolitics. Joe Biden isn't even a person. He's like a fucking corpse up there. Like what the fuck is he? Like (laughs) people are like, God damn you, Joe Biden. It's like, you're yelling at somebody who's like a flesh suit. Mm -hmm. He's just, he's just a cover for all of this stuff for you know the hegemony of the scientific community the the who and peter dazak and fucking anthony fauci did way more to fuck up your life than any president ever could i mean right. seriously like you know when you have when you have absolute power you don't really you don't need to lie to people anymore you just kind of like change the narrative whenever you see fit. So the the whole thing is because the face looks different, because the specter isn't real, because the other is relinquished, you now have uh, the ability to change narratives whenever you want to. So Joe Biden goes, it was made in a lab, or whoever goes, it was made in a lab. And immediately, nobody has to really question it because they are so... Uh, because they don't understand, because they don't have any sort of like, you know, way in which to sort of actually reflect that maybe this, they can't decouple the image from the logos at all. Like there's no way to do that for them, for most people. They just, they can't because I mean, they were prepped for this for, I mean, a year. I mean, what is it going to do to your brain to be locked down, to be listening to these fucking people? Uh, and 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 then somehow, like, you're able to just kind of, like, you know, think, you know, historically in some sure. sort of meaningful way when you're... It, it's kind of like this last year is like a really bad girlfriend who was a DSM-4 psychopath who did everything they could, they came into your life, they rearranged it, and then they left you and they like fucked some other guy. And and 
and so you're sort of picking up the fragments of reality again and trying to put them back together because you know your entire life had been recategorized and reoriented for you so i try to have a little bit of empathy for the right. people who are just kind of you know not haven't really figured this out yet now for the for the people who have and are doing it in bad faith like when we talk about the neo rationalists and their sort of idealism uh i think the thing that makes me so angry is the fact that they do know better they know better but let's look at the institutions that mm, fund these people you have hauser and worth uh you have the new museum you have all of these art world adjacent uh institutions that fund the sort of you know para academia movement right. you, i mean look who funds benjamin bratt i mean come on look where his fucking money comes from and then he gets into uc san diego which is you know uh, famously home of another person who should have known better herbert marcuse mm -hmm. I, I mean like this isn't difficult stuff if you sort of rode the tiger and undertook this sort of process to try to make sense of the present. And Agamben talks about like how fake philosophers talk a lot about the past. They talk a lot mm -hmm. about the future. The neo-rationalists are fake because they're, they're fixated on the future. Mm -hmm. The Contbot and logo are fake because they're fixated on the past. Like, dude, I don't give a fuck what happened in the Iran Contra. Right. I don't give a fuck about Richard Nixon or yeah. the fucking Freemasons or any of this shit. None of this is relevant. It's yeah. completely irrelevant. It's cope because they don't want to take the rigorous task to assess the present. And so right. you can say, oh, yeah, I like Kajevi and Foucault and all these people are stupid and. Deleuze is nothing more than Tony Robbins. He's a self-help guru. But what are you doing to assess what's actually happening now? Right. Like, what What do you... And I think the biggest problem is... And Derrida talks about, the, you know, the need for reading. And and how, do we, how are we reading now? Like, what are we doing to read the present? Right. A lot of people are, are engaging. And on the identity front... The whole trad right wing shit, that's a fucking market identity too. Right. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. There's some validity to, I think, you know, masculinity. And, and I do think that is important because um, you can't just discredit, you know, material biological nature. Like, so right. I, do, I do really agree with some of that. But the whole, like, return and milk your fucking woman on a farm right. and uh, have your like this and that i'm like dude we're not going back like that's yeah. that's just some cope like i right. i just we're in a weird we're in a really weird time right now yeah i think it's uh there's there's a major irony to what you were talking about in in regards to like your opinions on trump or you know the idea that the presidency is basically worthless these days right I, I agree with you. And so there's this there's this paradoxical argument being made where people are like, oh, you can't have Trump in office because that's too sacred. That's too important a position. And he's going to screw it up. And then simultaneously, you have the fact that he he can't really screw things up because there's a lack of power there. Right. And the irony is to get Trump out of power, like you said, they just put in a corpse. Right. So the response to populism 
is to literally put sort of the end of history back, the dead mm. neoliberal society back. We don't want something different. We want something that's that that actually reiterates what Trump proved that the executive branch is worthless, right? Is completely worthless. We just want somebody who is less animated. That's just a corpse there, so that we can we can think that the presidency is doing what they should, right? There's there's this weird uh, phenomenon that I think ties to uh, what Alexander Dugan says about the end of history, where he says it's not that history is ending, right? It's not that that these things actually happened. It's that liberalism wants you to believe that it wants the end of history on its own terms, right? It wants to yeah. say, look, the competition is over. It's over. Put a bunch of dead guys in power, and then we have the rest of this figured out, right? It's it it, it kind of brings up this paradox of is there a way to counter a liberalism that just wants to be dead, right? That 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 essentially is aiming for an NPC society, right? Mm. It can completely it, you can completely uh take the hits of populism on either side, right? It can take a Trump, it could take a Bernie, it could take a communist, and it would still be the end of history in a liberal society. Hmm. That's a that's an interesting point. Uh I I'd sort of take it a step further in that I'm more of actually sort of like a climate doomer. Yeah. I think the end of history will actually coincide with absolute total eclipse and extinction. I think that's yes. the real end of history. I think this whole, uh, this sort of like Kojevian sense end of history, the Fukuyama thing mm -hmm. is strange because it, I really, I think Dugan is incredibly underrated as a political philosopher. I think he's mm -hmm. the greatest living political philosopher. Yeah. I really do. But I also, I, I preface that with what nick land he got he gets everything right but he's on the wrong side <laughs> uh so i i i kind of agree with that but i think i think he's probably our most interesting creative uh political thinker i really do mm -hmm. and i think he's looking at things he gets called a fascist and this. Right. He gets called a postmodernist. He gets called a traditionalist. You know somebody's doing something right when he's just attacked from all these different <laughs> sides. The right. right hate him because he's anti-racism. The left mm -hmm. hate him because he's a fascist and a right. Russian and a this and a that. It's like, uh, you know he's doing something cool when he just makes he to me he's like a total great example of somebody who has embraced heretical consciousness because right. he has just become the ultimate meme of <laughs> oh, uh, like to discredit him as uh, the ultimate sort of like uh heretic that people they just levy all these claims onto him. I think I'm like, all right, this is somebody who's doing something right because he's pissing off everybody. Right. Uh, is he on not my side? Yeah, he's on Russia and China's side now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but no, I, I see what you're saying. It's, it is the end of history on their own terms, but right. this is the problem in that they don't understand that they have so much less power than they do because again they're still captured 
by this same sort of neoliberal immaterial enterprise that forces them into this inner indentured servitude that everybody else on fucking earth has to deal with. Right. The, like the cross of neoliberalism is, is something we all have to bear. So the sort of girl boss striver, uh, you know, uh, trying to make their way up the corporate rat ladder. I mean, there is a heavy, they incur a heavy cost for doing that as well. And this is why I'm not talking empathy in this sort of, you know, touchy feely, therapeutical 70s, new age kind of way. But I do think that there needs to be some sort of clarity or understanding that these people are also uh, they're self-optimizing, self-exploiting right. dolls within their own, uh, within an ecosystem that they have way less control over that they don't even fully understand themselves. So they're just idiots, but right. they're at the same time, they, they still suffer, you know? Right, right, exactly. I think uh, maybe like the last thing we can talk about before we wrap up is that does that sound good cute are we yeah, about an hour that's over great. Yeah, cool yeah. i really want to ask because we have similar views on this and i'm very interested in your your views on this is the idea of finance going forward i think finance actually has an incredible amount of potential and i kind of agree with leotard when he says that the stock market will be the battleground of the future and obviously mm. gamestop kind of kind of gives us a glimpse of that Love i personally that, believe yeah. yeah that like when if, if we're gonna find new weapons as deleuze says it's going to be financial instruments that the rope that you know will hang the capitalists that they'll sell us will be volatility futures in my opinion yeah um, i'm really interested in your opinions on this and maybe you can speak on you know whatever approach you find will be most salient but what what do you see as the potential for finance as a almost a revolutionary weapon going forward i fully agree um i'm a little bit skeptical of bitcoin i think that there are some bad faith actors who have sort of centralized it but i do have a lot of hope for decentralized finance yeah uh for cryptography when you know cryptography has been around forever i mean it's 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 not like some new technological front that we've just sort of encryption right. uh but I think encryption is going to be something. I think it's going to be the future. I really, I really do, and I think it's going to be the new sort of revolutionary force, as you say, the new tool yeah. in which we fight uh, this with. So again, it's like you have the sort of neoliberal libertarians who are, you know, still going on the, and like I'm less interested in making money than I am the sort of philosophy behind bitcoin and i think right. you know lands writing on on bitcoin is incredible and the people who say oh look at him he literally thinks it solves the problem of space and time <laughs> what like this is what reza is trying to make fun of us mm -hmm. it's like do you understand that that's just not like a figure of speech like do you literally take that literally because the the fact that he claims that is almost that's like a non-statement does it really fucking matter in the right. scope of that text whether he thinks it solves the problem now one thing it does it it doesn't solve that problem but it alters our relationship to it right. you know because the ledger and and the blockchain is a self uh it's a self uh perpetuating 
system uh, in intelligence process. And Vincent Lee uh, had a really, really great uh, comparison between Reza and Nick Land. And, and he completely destroys the neo-rationalists. Like, how can you locate reason to the agent or the individual or the collective uh, as something when there is an entire there are entire intelligence processes with embedded truth procedures that exist in this world, mm-hmm. regardless of your input or not, regardless of social input, regardless of. Uh, so these things are already here. I'm way more interested in how these things fundamentally change our relationships than I am necessarily like making lots of money. I mean, yeah, cool. It would be great to ball out and make lots of money. I don't think that's really in the the cards for me too much. I mean, I've been doing some stuff with decentralized working with some people here and there though. So who knows? It might, I mean, uh, I, I definitely think that it, it is really important to sort of look at these tools. And this is why this is what makes these kind of, uh, Hegelian liberal so angry is that they and I do consider Bratton and Reza to be liberal Hegelians. I, I yeah. really do. They again because even though they claim to be communist or whatever, they're still centering. Uh, they're still centering being on the this predicated idea that being is is only experienced through in this is in a lot of ways why Marxism is so conservative, right? Because right. it's still just a heavily anthropocentric 20th century modernist ideology. Very much so. Like, why are we still talking about like, right. sure. There's some good things like, come on, like we, we've let's just like, let's not beat this horse too much. It's fucking dead. Okay. And to me, it's like, why don't we cut out all the dead shit and focus on things that are present. And right. and I think Deleuze, I really think people should read him. I think they should read yeah. Simon Din. I think they should read uh, Bourdieu. I think the cyberneticists are people who are incredibly important to read. Bernard right. Stiegler, another guy, weird that he likes Ben Bratton. Uh, yeah. That kind of <laughs> weirded me out. Um, but I do think people should check these guys out uh, and because they're – leotard another great example to just see where we're where we're our relationship to these things because if we can understand our relationship to the things that we can't change we can manage our relationship inside and and i think ernst Jünger is such a great example of somebody when he talks about like the anarchist is somebody who rages against society until the straight jacket gets closer, you know, you see Antifa, right. right? Like you see chop and all of these things like they, but the anarch is somebody who doesn't run away. He's not a forest fleer. He doesn't exit. He's somebody who, who radically fundamentally as a historian understands his place within techne, within the, the gestel, within right. all of this stuff that you cannot change and i do believe in the sort of uh that we can through through historical knowledge radically and fundamentally alter our relationship and decolonize the inner experience right 
Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, I think especially your thoughts on this and uh, on, on Techne, on Gestell, and on finance, I think is really sort of the bleeding edge for myself personally of what we should be thinking about theoretically. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, and I really encourage our listeners to check out Contain if they want to hear more of Barrett's thoughts. Um, but I just want to say thanks. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Q, yeah. do, you, do you have any last questions? No, thanks for coming on, Barrett. I, I've been a huge fan and I really wanted to just sit down and discuss some of your ideas because I think they're yeah. really important and they really resonate with some of the stuff that we're I mean, me and Young are kind of working mm. on. Um, yeah. I guess my only thing would be, my final question would be, uh, given that we like to present this podcast as a neo-vitalist project, uh, what would you want someone listening to you, uh, what would your last comment be of what they should take away and what they can do in terms of, not to be cheesy like Praxis, but like what, what, can, what can you still do? What opportunities can you still take that... Um, you know, that, that I would want people to, to walk away with. I would, uh, I would just embrace the moment and, and I would, I would do everything you can to, you know, walk through the fire. And I think, uh, I think in the question of vitalism, uh, and becoming, I think is, you know, I, I'm a vitalist, I'm an unabashed Nietzschean, uh, <laughs> Spinozist, uh, Deleuze guy, uh, even though I've gotten a little bit more pessimistic when I've gotten more into Heidegger and uh, yeah. and uh, Derrida, so that that kind of um, it, it's not a pessimism. It's just a, a way in which uh, not only do we sort of the way to I think optimize yourself in 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 un neoliberal way in a and to reaffirm your vitalism is to decolonize yourself from this psychotechnical influence. I think the way to do it is to engage, but uh, also cleanse your, your, yourself from that. And I think to do that, turn off your notifications, uh, engage and start a creative project but don't launch it off of, don't piggyback it off of any of this crap. Like right. just do it, you know, just do anything and don't care and just be finance punk, you know, get, get into the theories behind uh, cryptography, you know, don't live in the past, like just see what's around us and, and see what we can actually do now to sort of, uh, I guess you would say it, you know, reinvent the future away from this kind of uh, liberal Hegelian dystopia that they want us to sort of live in. And, you know, I right. mean, that's I think that's the best way to do it. It's not, you know, go outside, uh, drink probiotics, uh, work out. That's all good stuff for your mind. It's good stuff for your body. A lot of that stuff still applies. And I mean, I mean that's basically it is just to decolonize the inner experience. Yeah, that that would be that would be my my main answer many years have passed but you're still charming 
bros falling, exploding You can't save the world on your own 